1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is free call 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknovashow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. I hope you take the time to join us in our interactive chat room, irc.com. Freenode.net pound ask Noah show if you ever download the video version of the show visit us on YouTube and you see the chat scrolling across the screen that's what I have up on in front of me as uh, as I'm doing the show that's the one another way to interact just had a conversation with the listener right before I got on the air and uh, he was saying well I, I never have the opportunity to call in I'm not real comfortable on the phone but wanted to ask you a question or wanted to give you some input that's the way to do it if you want to do it anonymously do it through IRC um, or Join us in our interactive number room or more. give us a call at 855 450 no. We'd love to have you any which way you'd like to join. Now, this week was an interesting week because I've spent the last two or three weeks talking a little bit about IP cameras and what breaks in the news this week that ring cameras are being hacked all the way around the country and some pretty terrifying things are occurring. So I will do my level best to not say I told you so, but please Please, please, please take this as a word of caution. Please don't plug things in the internet that you don't know what they do and you don't have time or the expertise to manage them. Hire somebody to do it if you have to, or join IRC.freenode.net, ask Noah Show, jump in the chat room, or join our interactive Telegram group at telegram.asknoahshow.com. And ask him there. Somebody will probably have some time to help you. And if I have some spare time, I will help you because I don't want this to happen to your family. Across the country, there have been several accounts of ring cameras being hacked recently. There, they were shouting profanities, racial slurs, threats at nine-year-olds and 11-year-olds who said they ran out of their house in terror. I heard real screaming and I came out to see what was going on, said Myra's neighbor, Johnny Davila. They had somebody in their house, and they're yelling, they're going to kill us. Mayor's neighbor got his gun and ran next door, thinking there was somebody inside the home. As he heard the voice coming from the camera, he eventually realized that the camera had been hacked. It made me so mad that they're I want to stop right there for a minute before I even go on. This word, hacked. Hacked. It's not really hacked. I mean, I guess it is. It doesn't really matter how you you gain unauthorized access to it. But here's the here's the bottom line. It's not like there is some massive security vulnerability. I mean, there might be. It's not like there's some massive security vulnerability in these cameras. And that's what's causing people to have their video feeds exposed to creeps that are trying to terrorize children. What's actually happening is people are setting insecure passwords and thanks to modern convenience are thrilled that all they have to do is go to the Google Play Store or the Apple I, uh, um, App Store and download the Ring app and sign into their account with their easy, simple, you know, convenient to remember password, probably their kid's name and the last two digits of their birthday. And then they can log in and then they have immediate access to the camera. They don't have to futz with this firewall nonsense. They don't have to understand TCP and UDP and NAT rules. That's all a thing of the past. Now I download an app and I just sign in. Isn't that better? Please enlist the help of a professional or at least get somebody from the community who has some insight into these things that can give you some basic pointers like your password should be longer than eight characters. It should contain both upper and lowercase values. It should have special marks, right? That's a great start. It's not a perfect password, but it's a really great start. At least you won't be the low-hanging fruit. The article goes on to continue. Myra got his gun, ran over, knew there was somebody. blah, 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 blah. Myra's now deactivated her ring cameras in her house. Well, that's a good idea. And she said that she'll be getting rid of them this weekend. Even better. They don't want to sleep here. They don't want to sleep by themselves, Myra said. They don't want to be in the house. She said representatives for the camera company do not think their system was compromised. But instead, they believe that the hacker gained ac- to access to their passwords. Well, yeah, that's kind of what we just said. And 2Bit in the chat room points out the website Shodan.io, dot nio Now, this is a website I was talking about a couple of weeks ago that is a search engine for Internet of Things. And so if you're one of these people that purchase a ring camera or... I'm not picking on ring specifically, you know, nest, hello, whatever. And you buy this camera and you don't properly secure it and you put it in your house and you throw it on the internet. There is a search engine that will go through and find cameras that either are live on the internet and have easily crackable passwords or most of them just have the default. And then it streams the, the, uh, the video. And so you just click on the city and just see how many cameras are available inside people's homes, on their homes, outside their homes, wherever, and they're available and live on the internet and re- and there, you know it's interesting because the i t community has really fractured on sh uh, on showdown It seems like the vast majority of people are like that's disgusting that the website would take advantage of people that are doing this really I consider this to be a service I really do I think that maybe the maybe the creators of the website were perhaps malicious when they started it. Maybe there are people that are, you know, obviously upset that their camera is being advertised to the world. But the reality is it's a great reality check for people to say, hey, your stuff is hanging out in the open and you probably should shut the front door. Mm. I find this interesting that the representatives of the company um, are, you know, are insistent that the the device isn't compromised because from, you know, an IT security standpoint, obviously the first thing we'd want to know is, well, how did these people get in? How did they get access? And, of course, you're going to ask some of those questions. You're going to look at things like, is there a known exploit against Ring cameras? There is a known exploit against hike vision cameras. But that wasn't the problem, or at least that's not what Ring believes the problem was. They just believe that they didn't have a decent password. Quote, I think they need to figure out how this thing happened so that we can get some info to the police and the right steps to be taken, she said. There should be repercussions for the trauma that my kids are facing. Now, listen, no disrespect um to the mother i feel terrible for her and her family nobody should have to go through that no parent should go have to go through that and regardless of your understanding of technical devices and and how to set them up properly or improperly this is completely inappropriate and if anybody happens to have contact with this this poor woman and her kids let her know that ultra speed technologies would gladly send her a non-internet of things camera right to her home so that she can have peace of mind and check in on an app uh, with her kids, but it'll be properly secured behind an actual firewall with an actual VPN tunnel that goes from one thing to the other. Tech security experts say your best defense for something like this is changing your password often and enabling two-factor authentication. I would go one further. I have a fundamental issue with video footage and or private things that traverse a company server. And And again, I've I've kind of lived IP cameras the past few weeks. If you go and look at the, 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 the go-to manufacturers that are out there, almost all of them have some sort of cloud service that is tied to the camera. Now, many of them expose a, a regular RTSP stream that you can just pull from. But as long as that cloud service is still enabled, as long as it's available to the camera, that information is still potentially being sent to the company. And many of these companies are not based in the United States. They're based somewhere else. A lot of them are based in China. That makes a lot of people nervous. Now you can debate all day if it should be make you nervous or not. but there is a GitHub repository for hike vision cameras, and in the GitHub repository, it has known exploits that you can just download and run so that you can gain access to hike vision cameras. like this is something that is terrifying to me because people are putting this in their business and in their homes. and I hate to open up the third week in a row talking about cameras again, but it's an important thing, and it's clearly a message that people need to hear. Don't put things connected to the Internet in your home unless it's sitting behind a proper firewall. And with the new year coming up, the, uh, the, the December upon us, I thought it might be a good idea to kind of reset a little bit and talk about some some ways that you can plan for the new year, your network and your house, not just cameras, but security in general. Friday was a special day for me. Last Friday was uh, well, actually, it was last Monday. Excuse me. Was uh December 9th. I uh, I took some time over the weekend, but uh, the actual day was December 9th. And the reason that December 9th is special to me is because December 9th of 2009 was the day that I filed the paperwork with the state of North Dakota to start AltaSpeed. I took $200 out of my personal account and I deposited it into my new business account that I opened up at my bank. And then I promptly took that $200 and wrote a check to the state to tell them, that for the year of 2009, AltaSpeed Technologies was now a business and we didn't make any money. I paid the government $200 to tell them that I made zero, by the way. That's, we got off to a great start. Year one was terrible. And over the last 10 years, I have learned a lot of things. And I get people all the time on this program. I get people that I meet at conferences. I get people that I meet on the street. And they ask me, how did you do that? How did you build AltaSpeed Technologies? And the full story is probably longer than I maybe would dedicate an episode to it someday. But the short version is this. Everybody looks at success as a linear approach. They look at a pyramid and they just assume that they are going to climb the pyramid. And over time, they'll slowly work the grind. And someday they'll be at the top of the pyramid. And I, I really don't think that's an accurate portrayal. Of how people build businesses. And I used it, it caused a lot of imposter syndrome at first because I thought, this isn't how people do business. I must be doing it wrong. I must be a terrible business owner. I must not know enough about businesses. I must not pay enough attention to the right reports or do the right things or spend enough money or allocate money the right way or borrow money the right way or all the things that you hear you're supposed to be doing in a business. And the truth is, the successful business is really a successful person that is standing on a pile of failures because you figure out what doesn't work and then you augment and you learn. And it's painful for your customers and it's painful for you and it's painful for those around you because when you first start out, you make mistakes. You make a lot of them. And you have to own up to them and you have to go in front of customers and tell them, hey, I told you this job was going to cost $500 and I've been here for seven and a half days. And so you have to make a decision. And your decision is you can either ask them for more money or you can say, I told you it was going to be 500 bucks. It's going to be 500 bucks. And I've done it both ways. And what I've learned is you cannot purchase trust. It's something that has to be earned. And the way that you go about earning trust is going into businesses and doing a good job and keeping your word. And so when I started out, if I told somebody something was going to cost $500, didn't matter if I was there for seven days, didn't matter if I was there for 14 days, I charge them $500. Because that's what I told him I was going to charge him. And I was having a conversation. We we're kind of winding down for 2019 and, and, and preparing some new stuff for 2020. I've gone back and talked to some of the clients that were with me at the beginning. And I've asked them, why, did you, why have you been with us for 10 years? Well, what was it that drew you to? It? And there's one guy told me flat out. He said, called you. Nobody else would answer the phone. And said, my network debt was down at my hotel. And he needed somebody out there. And you were there in 45 minutes. And I asked you what it was going to take to fix it. And he told me it was going to take X amount of dollars. And. Over the next month, I think we replaced half of their network, and when they got the bill, it was X amount of dollars, exactly what I told him it was going to be, and he said, I've just liked you ever since. I just appreciated the honesty, and I earned that man's trust, and, I earned, and he has now been with us, not just at that current hotel, which has long since shut down and no longer even in existence, but he has gone from one hotel to another hotel to businesses outside the hospitality industry, and every time he does, he calls Alta Speed Technologies and has us come do his IT work. And if it's under a new ownership or if it's if it's a if it's a completely different business, he talks to that business owner and says, hey, if you're going to have I.T. work, this is the company I work with. This is the company I want managing my I.T. infrastructure. And it's been it's been very interesting to me and it's been very encouraging to me to look at numbers and kind of where we have gotten to. And I've I, I've, I spent the last few days just kind of going through the actual practical steps because that question comes up so much. What thing, how do you, how do you do, how do I do the thing that you do? And so I want to share that with you. And, And it starts out with basic things. First thing, answer the phone. Answer the phone. It's one of my pet peeves if I am calling a business and I have to wait on the phone for more than three rings. Statistically speaking, people will hang up after three rings. And so you're missing out on opportunities. I had, an opportunity, or I had an opportunity for somebody else. I wanted to regrade my backyard. I had some water that was, that was um, piling up near my foundation. It was a serious problem. So I wanted, to, I wanted to just get the lawn regraded so all the water would drain out far into the yard. And I called one landscaping company after the other. I called one gardening company after the other. And nobody would return my call. And I got to the point where I thought, nobody wants to take my money. I want to spend money. I want this work done. I would gladly pay this person thousands of dollars to come regrade my backyard. I could not get anybody to call me back. That is a frustrating situation. And one of the things that we did very well early on was we had a, a phone system. Uh, it was called Grasshopper. And basically, it's a it's not really a phone system. It is a website that has a phone number. and. It essentially is like glorified call forwarding. So you get started for, I think it's like, maybe it's uh, 20 bucks a month, I think is what they start with. And, oh, thank you. Yeah. Okay. You got pull it pulled up for me. Uh, yeah. It starts starts at 26 bucks per month and here, and you get, um, you get one number and three extensions and then you can create extensions like one for business and two for uh, residential stuff and three for service and four for billing, whatever it is, right? What ends up happening is you can assign different cell phone numbers to be rung when a person dials that particular digit in the IVR. And so it gives the impression of a nice big phone system, but you get it for 26 bucks a month. And that was before, obviously, things like asterisks had become a thing and obviously before some other things had... had, uh, had had picked up, and so now it's gotten even easier. If you spin up a free Asterisk box or you spin up a, th- a, f- a 3CX box, you can host that thing on DigitalOcean for 5 bucks a month. Or you, if you want to really get cheap, you can host it on Voltaire for like $3 a month. And if you really want to get down, you can go to like OVH, and you can get it down to 195 or 2 bucks a month. And you can host an Asterix-based phone system, and you can do all those forwarding rules yourself. Now it's a little more difficult to set up. But that is a tool that fundamentally allowed me to get off the ground. I didn't have money for a business phone system when I started. Heck, I didn't have money for my cell phone when I first got started. And so the ability to go over to Grasshopper and just sign up, no monthly commitment, no long-term contract, none of that allowed me to succeed. The other thing, signed up right away for credit card processing. Now, when I started out, I went to a very shady company that I found on the Internet, and I read through the contract in its entirety and and highlighted sections that were concerning to me, sent it back to the company. We went back and forth for weeks, and eventually they finally settled on it and said, okay. And I was nervous about the company to begin with, but before I ever had a chance to actually send them the money and get the contract in place, they just stopped responding to me. And I thought, well, that's how they treat me before I'm even a customer. How are they going to treat me when I am a customer? And I wound up, of all places, with Intuit doing credit card processing because they had no monthly fee, and they had a little credit card reader that you could just plug into your phone. And to this day, that Intuit account is still active because I appreciate the fact that they gave me an opportunity when nobody else would. They were willing to work with me when I was too small to work with anybody else. Now you might imagine these days we process a lot more credit cards and it would not be it would not be a sound business decision to process it at the three point four percent or four percent or whatever it is on Intuit. But I still keep it activated. And if we're out, you know, I did a, a service call at a at a a mobile RV of all places. And I went in, the guy asked, he goes, can I pay right now? And I said, yeah, sure. I've got the little uh, thing and I just, I swiped it. And I like to give them some business from time to time, even though they're a massive company, they don't know who I am. They probably don't care. I, I'm one of those people that tends to be loyal to those who treated me well. And I remember when I got started that all these credit card companies wouldn't work with me. Now today there's a lot of options. You can go with the square, Payment system, which is probably the most popular little device for $9, you buy Best Buy or Office Max or whatever, plug it into your phone, you can process credit cards in about 10 minutes. If you want to take a step up from that, Stripe is a really interesting business model because they don't actually do anything for you directly. Uh, they, it's not like you can just sign up like a PayPal account and actually use it, but it's a back end credit card payment processing system. And so essentially what it allows you to do. Is they give you an API key, and you can tie it into either, like if you go to altispeed.com, click on Client Resources, and then the Pay My Bill uh, page, it will it, it, it essentially takes that information and sends it through a, an SSL layer to Stripe, and then Stripe actually does the payment processing and then deposits the money in our bank account. Um, those kinds of things are available, and Stripe doesn't cost anything to set up. You just go over there and sign up for an account. And, um, you know, they're going to have a little bit higher fee if you don't have the, if you don't have any of the monthly stuff, but there are massive places that are banking themselves on Stripe. In fact, a lot of the places like, um, not Patreon specifically, but other competitors to Patreon are actually using Stripe in the back end. And so if you're looking to get up and running with credit card processing, you have a whole bunch of options available to you today. Things that I didn't have. And the other thing is when it comes to hardware payment processing terminals, um, you know, nine years ago, ten years ago, you were purchasing a thing from either uh, not Verisign—that's the SSL thing. What's the uh, Ingenico? The little Ingenico readers, and they were like six, seven hundred dollars. And today, they're even more expensive because they support chip and pin. But you can go over to Best Buy or Office Max, and again, you buy a square processor thing, and it probably costs two or three hundred dollars. And again, one time fee, no monthly commitment, no long term contracts, none of that, and. It, it just enables you to get your business off the ground. When you start looking at servers, you're going to have things that you're going to have to host. And I suggest you outline these things ahead of time, but you don't actually do anything. You say, I would want a ticketing system. I would want a scheduling system. I'd want a phone system. And don't actually put any of those things in production. Spin one up at a time and try it for a week and see how much you actually use the thing. And if you end up using your scheduling system constantly and you don't find yourself just jotting things down or you don't want it in Google Calendar or you don't want it, you know, wherever the other alternative is to having a dedicated scheduling system, well, then go ahead and say, all right, this is going to officially roll into production for my business. I'm going to use a scheduling thing. If you're not sure about if you want to host a phone service yourself, or if you want to just sign up at you know, a grasshopper, or if you wanted to go over to Fox Telesys, hey, they have a deal going on right now where they will give you a hosted 3CX system. So it is a business IP. phone system, and you just buy the phones or you just download the app, they'll take care of everything, and that's only uh, you know that's a pizza a month is what they do it for. I mean, it's just incredible opportunities to start businesses. When you get into the actual work of it. And, and the actual meat and potatoes of doing IT work. The number one question I get asked is, how do you get business? How do you get started? How do you get your foot in the door? And the answer, people don't like it. I, I, I give people the answer over and over again. And it's the same answer every time. People just don't like to accept it. And the answer is, you have to know somebody. You get things because of who you know. And you get, you get opportunity. Because of people you know. Eight fifty-five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. Colonel, that's a cool name, especially since I'm Colonel Linux. How we doing? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Um, there's more to it
0: than just a colonel, but uh, I use that for just talking to people. That works. Um, so I didn't know if you'd seen it, um, but uh, there's actually a VPN vulnerability that affects Linux. Okay. Have you come across that yet?
1: I, we covered one uh, uh, two, three weeks ago in which they were, stealing Open v- they were stealing uh, VPN credentials from Linux. I, I'm not sure if that's the way the, the, uh, the CryptoWare one, that, or no, not CryptoWare, but it's something different.
0: Yeah, this actually allows an attacker to man in the middle a VPN connection. Really? Um, they can either use a rogue access point, or if they're on the LAN, they can actually jump in and start injecting things into that VPN stream. Uh, interesting. I the link into the chat room. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it's actually interesting in the fact that it, as far as we're aware, as far as anybody can tell, it doesn't actually affect Windows. It only affects Linux and Unix systems.
1: Interesting. Okay, and so I haven't... So
0: that, I didn't know... If you,
1: you. <laughs> So I have this yeah, pulled. I, I have this pulled up. So the so, so essentially the right way right this right. is working is the attack works against IPv4 and IPv6. Um, the the only thing it's not working uh, against is Tor, and of course because Tor is not technically a, a, a VPN, it's doing it a little bit differently. It's actually encrypting the it's actually encrypting the packets itself. It's not encrypting a stream and then sending packets you know through it. But the the the, the vulnerability basically allows the attacker, if as long as they're on the same network, to target the user and determine if they're using a a. a VPN, and then they're able to obtain a virtual IP address assigned by the VPN server, and then determine if the target is currently accessing a particular website. And then they're even able to, in, as as uh, as Colonel was just saying, inject data into that TCP stream, and that can allow the attacker to hijack active connections within the VPN tunnel. Um, I would imagine that there are that there is limits to what this is going to be effective at. One of the things I notice is. It um, it doesn't specify. Ah, here we go. The attack was tested against OpenVPN, WireGuard, IKEv2, IPsec, um, and so that's that's really interesting because it, it essentially means that the the fundamental premise of a VPN uh, appears to have a a, a serious flaw. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the other thing is the fact that it doesn't seem to affect Windows may indicate that it actually may not be attacking the VPN technology itself, but something in the networking stack. Because mm. I know there's a lot shared between the Unix systems. Um, I, I haven't had a chance to sit down and do a really deep dive into it and look at, you know, down to like packet header level exactly what's going on. but. You know, you being the Linux advocate, and especially the last couple of episodes you've been Mm -hmm. talking about VPN technology, I thought it was something that you'd want to see.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really fascinating. I I mean, again, and I I thank you very much for the call. The reality is there is no such thing as perfect security, right? Security is a moving target. And so if you ever think, ah, now I'm secure. Well, you're not. Um, security is always a moving target, and you have to be aware of that. The other thing, uh, and this rolls perfectly into the episode, best practices, things I've learned over the last 10 years, owning an IT company, anytime you're going to approach security, you approach it in an Onion model. You should have multiple links in your security chain so that if one should fail, you have other ones covering you. Let me explain. In this particular model, from the best I can ascertain in the Three and a half, you know, minutes. I've been, you know, l- looking at this article since it was brought to my attention. The VPN tunnel itself may be under attack, and they may be able to eject some TCP packets into that stream. However, if you have proper, uh, proper SSL working, that should detect a man in the middle attack because it, it, the again, it's checking the cryptographical signature. Of the remote side and saying, hey, am I the same person that I talked to last time? And then it's establishing uh, a, a, an SSL tunnel. And so you're essentially if you're going through a VPN and you're using SSL. You're essentially the at least the packets that are going to that website are actually being encrypted twice. So this is a and by the way, thank you very much to Colonel for calling in. Uh, I Invite stuff like this. If you have something you'd like to share or something on topic or off topic, please give me a call eight fifty five four fifty noaa This underscores the uh, the importance of encrypted DNS queries. Um, because again, security being a moving target, one of the things that we have working for us is the fact that you have some of the brightest and sharpest minds in the world spending their time developing new systems to thwart these kinds of attacks. And so yes, today, there's an article that says that there are some security vulnerabilities with VPN technology. And I, I would say that the vast majority of us that work in the field would have never said that a VPN is a foolproof technology. And, and, and again, just kind of circling back this a story that we covered two, three weeks ago, there was an attack just a few weeks ago in which there was a exploit for Android and people could steal the open VPN credential or the open VPN profile. From your Android phone now, if you're not protecting your OpenVPN profile with a password, and a lot of people don't, especially those that have corporate uh, accounts, because it's too uh, convoluted, I guess, and too difficult to manage uh, these files that are that are encrypted with uh, without or not encrypted, I guess, with with a passphrase, and they just want to click the button and they want their VPN to connect. Um, these are the kinds of things that, uh, that allow people to steal that profile. And once you steal that open VPN profile, remember it has the host, so they know exactly where they're going. It has the private key. So they're able to authenticate if it's not secured with the passphrase, like that's a big deal. They have, it's not only do they have the keys to the house, they have a freaking directory listing and they got maps to get to the house. So it's a bad deal all around. Um, so we'll definitely, I'll, I'll, I'll do some digging and, uh, might invite, um, Bo Weaver on to discuss this with us uh, coming up because this will be interesting. Things I've learned uh, at AltaSpeed Technologies have taught me that security is a moving target and in general, IT is a moving target. There is nothing that frustrates me more than when I sit down with some kid that graduated college and he sits down in my office for an interview and I ask him, Tell me something about Relate. what's what, uh, what are you excited about for Relate coming out or Relate 8 being released what uh, what have you learned or what have you played with and I get this answer: I wasn't certified on rel eight I was uh, I was certified on rel six uh-huh but rel8 is out now yeah I uh, my certification is in rel six. okay iT doesn't work that way, right nobody cares what you were certified well maybe large fortune 500 companies care. Real people who are spending real money don't care what your certifications are in. Your certifications are nothing more than a way for you to express that you have a given proficiency in a given technology. And if that technology is one version old, we expect, or at least I do, that you are constantly on top of these things. And it's one of the reasons that continuing education requirements are a thing. We want people to be involved In the IT industry, we want them to be paying attention. And so if you go to apply for a job and they say, we want you to know Apache, we want you to know AWS, and we want you to know Cisco, and we want you to know uh, know, this, that, or the other, make sure that it's not just whatever training course that you could find if it's a year old, make sure that you're actually in the program and playing and exploring and learning. Because somebody who can troubleshoot their way out of a paper bag is far more valuable to me than somebody that has more degrees than a thermometer. And I've had that. I've had that side by side comparison. Had had a guy that worked for me that uh, that uh, that dropped out of high school years ago and will not take a job uh, if they make a fuss about him having a high school diploma. And he was one of the smartest people that has ever worked for me. And by contrast, I've had people that again have more degrees than a thermometer, but they can't troubleshoot their way out of a paper bag. Um, They don't think critically. And so if you're one of those people that maybe you're not thinking about applying for or you're not thinking about starting a business, but you would like to work for a business, that's one of the roads you go down is you pay attention to what technologies that company is using and do it better than the guy that's there. And that doesn't take a That doesn't take a special education. It doesn't take a, a a tremendous amount of time. It takes you sitting down on your computer and frankly, getting on some subreddits. If you want to get into the network industry, pay attention to r slash networking. If you want to get into, you know, processor development and microcode and and stuff like that, get on r slash hardware. Uh, If you want to get into building massive, overly built racks with lots of servers and all the stuff that you don't really need but it's fun to play with, get on r slash labs. I mean, each one of these Reddits is filled, each one of these communities, I really should say. Are filled with some of the best and brightest minds working in all sorts of industry, industries. Everything from ultra speed technologies with its seven employees, all the way up to Fortune five hundred companies that have offices on every continent and 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 multiple uh, little sub branches and all sorts of different things. And when you start looking at the way that they build out their networks and the kind of practices that they go into, you will learn very quickly. Uh, What you need good practices and the best way to go about them. And I have gotten a tremendous amount of information off the Internet. It's one of the best tools to use for researching. And I know to a certain extent I'm preaching to the crowd, but it's amazing how many people ask uh, ask other other people questions that they could go on the Internet and look up themselves. And so use that to your advantage and, and use that as you're getting your business off the ground or if you're applying for a job somewhere because it's it's equally valuable another thing there too a lot of times we start out discussions with people saying i asked somebody why are you looking to apply for a job here rather than you know where you're at why are you looking at leaving your employer and occasionally i will get the answer job security and job security is one of those things that i really kind of i i kind of recoil at when i hear that and here's why If you are good at your job, you're not you don't worry about job security because it's not the company that is valuable. It's your skill set and your determination and your integrity and all those things. If you don't have that skill set and you don't have integrity and you're not willing to work hard, it doesn't matter which company you work for or if you're working for yourself. You're never going to be successful. Companies are going to fire you if you don't make them more money than you cost. So there is no such thing as a company, for the most part, there is no such thing as a company that you can just skate by. For the most part, you're going to have to pull your weight, especially in small business. If that's the case, and if that's true, and I assure you that it is, then the next question becomes, do you want to own your own job? And that's another thing I get questions about all the time. I want to start my own company, or I have started my own company. How do I know when it's time to shift? from the daytime job to the owning my company job. And the answer to that is I use the boat analogy. If you're on a speedboat or you have a boat in the water and, uh, and you want to get into that boat and you're currently standing on the nice stable dock, the goal is to get the boat as close to the dock as possible without running into the dock that you can jump over into the boat without landing in the water. So translating that analogy to jobs You'll work your part-time job, you'll work the company that you own on the off hours when you're not at your quote-unquote day job, and when the other job starts to make money or shows potential to make more money than your day job, then you go ahead and just step on over and say, okay, now I'm just, it's kind of a mental shift. All right, now I'm going to live off of this, and the day job becomes my either my auxiliary or my extra job, or I just get rid of it altogether, I just focus hardcore on this. That leads to the next question. When do I hire my first employee? And this is something that I struggle with because I tried to grow too fast too soon. When we started, I quit my job uh, that I was working at as a as a, um, well, as a medical software company is really what it was. But I, I quit my job. Don't do that. Um, and I just decided that I was going to go out on my own. And so I filed the paperwork. And then a few months later, I find out my wife's pregnant with our first kid. And I realized that. I don't have a job. I don't really have a company. I just have you know this thing on paper, and the company lost $200 in its first year. We didn't make a dime, and we're on track to lose more money because we still don't have a single client, and we still haven't made any money. And, and that is a terrifying prospect to, to, to face, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So there are different ways to go about transitioning into a full-time job where you own the company, Take advantage of that. Take advantage of dragging that out a little bit and doing it at a comfortable pace for you and your family. Make sure if you're married that you're talking with your spouse about this, right? If he or she says, hey, I'm you know, I need you to I need you to have a little bit more stability and talk about what kind of money you want coming into your house. If you as a rule of thumb, you could you basically are going to lose about twenty five percent. So if you make a hundred bucks, you basically are going to be able to keep seventy five. And the way that works is this. You take Every dollar that you make and put it into a separate account, preferably a business banking account that is registered with your tax identification number. Now, you can get a tax identification number by just going to the IRS. They make it very easy because they're very happy to take your money. And so you go over to the IRS. It takes like 45 seconds. So you can generate a what's what's known as an EIN. And you take that EIN over to your bank and you tell them that you want to open up a bank account. And all of the money. That you make at your company. Goes into that bank account. And the only thing you ever take money out of that account for is expenses. And so if you have to buy a product for a client. That comes out of the business account. And if you need to take a client out to lunch. And have a discussion with them. That comes out of the business account. And if you need a cell phone for your business. That comes out of the business account. And the only thing you do out of that business account. Is you spend money directly for your, uh, for your, for your business. For your clients. By definition, then everything that is left in the account, if the only thing that we've written out of the account is expenses and the only thing we've put in is the income, then by definition, what's left is known as profit. And at the very end of the month or the week or the year, however it is you want to do it, you will take out uh, however much money it is you want to take out. And you don't want to store money in your business because that leads to all sorts of banking regulations and are you a bank and are you an investment firm and do you comply with financial blah blah don't store money in your business take the money out and you'll set aside 25 percent personally now i'm talking set aside 25 percent, and that will cover you for the most part until you start making a, you know, a little over 100 that will cover you uh for taxes at the end of the year and then you know you can either pay an accountant to do it or you can figure out how to do it yourself or you can use the uh, you know some of the free software But that's how you'll manage the money part of your new business. So then we start talking about services and products and how do we pick products. And I've answered this question a couple of times before. The way I pick products at Ultraspeed Technologies is the products that I use in my house. Now, Nisram in the chat room says, do you recommend using the built-in firewall in the edge router or do you recommend an appliance? uh, for a home firewall. And so again, going along with my, my logic of, I only install things that I have, that I would put in my own house. I would put a separate firewall appliance in, uh, or a, or a, oh, I'm sorry, into the edge router. Yes. I use the firewall appliance that's built into the router. Um, they have actually gone away from branding uh, routers as routers, and they've started calling them, Security gateways, or unified security gateways, or, or or security devices, or edge security gateway, and the idea is this: that device is do is the thing that sits at the edge of your network and provides the security for things coming in and leaving your network. And uh, so, it's much more than just a router. It's not just uh, establishing IP routes. It's doing a lot of security things. In fact, honestly, the vast majority of the heavy lifting that a router does today probably has more to do. With firewalls and NAT translation and stuff like that, than it ever has to do with um, with uh, with with you know like uh, routing tables and stuff like that. Average consumer router probably doesn't deal with that a whole lot. Um, and so, uh, and to that end, I have paid very close attention to what features come with which firewalls. Now, if you're talking about the EdgeRouter specifically, that is a product from Unify, and the, the the issue that I have with Unify is threefold. First of all. I love their access points. I think that's probably the best access point money can buy. But their other products leave a lot to be desired. And I've gone through some of the, the issues I have with their switches where, you know, they don't support stacking and there's you know, there's some IGMP issues and stuff like that. And so when you start getting in if you want a basic business switch and you want to throw some VLANs up and running, yeah, Ubiquiti's all right. But when you want to do any serious switching, it becomes virtually unmanageable. And the thing is, some of those features you don't think are a big deal until you start using them as scale. Stacking, perfect example, right? If you're not familiar with what stacking is, stacking, uh, for lack of a, uh, a long explanation, it's where we take two switches that are two independent switches, and we connect them together in such a way that they appear to all intents and purposes as if it's a single switch. So instead of having 10 IP addresses to manage your 10 switches, and instead of having switchboard 1 through 4, you have... Uh, You have one IP address for uh, essentially what appears to be a single device. That's massively helpful. And especially when you're in a a situation where one company is being acquired by another. And this is something that we've dealt with a lot. People build out their networks for what their company is doing today. And uh, with very, very few exceptions, no company really exists without the threat of, not threat, but without the possibility of being purchased uh, or acquired by another company. And when that happens, it's always a mess to sort out the I, the IT stuff. You will never have a more, you'll never have a, a busier, more hectic weekend than when you have to re-IP an entire network. When you go through and say, yep, This twenty four jobby uh, for this massive corporate network is uh, is way outgrown and it just needs to go away and everything has to be redone. And so a couple of tips there. When you're subnetting, first of all, I still see people talking about classful subnetting and it drives me nuts. We talk about class A, class B, class C. Nobody has really used classful subnetting in like 20 years. And so if you hear that, just kind of put it out of your mind what you're really looking for when you're establishing subnetting when you're deciding on subnetting for your your business is how many ip addresses you want available uh on the network and it's a give and take the problem with putting everything on one gigantic network is something called broadcast traffic and so essentially with every machine that boots up the first thing it does is says good morning I need a DHCP lease who hands those out around here and because the computer doesn't have an IP address and because the I the computer doesn't even know what IP scheme to use much less who to contact about that information it just spams that information to everything to every device on the network receives those broadcast packets and the same is true of, of um, printers when they come online. Um, they advertise themselves as, and, and a lot of that is broadcast traffic. There's a lot of things that 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 utilize broadcast traffic. And so my rule of thumb is I try to keep subnets is with with user machines that are going to have some broadcast traffic lower than, mm, say, 500, some uh, some space of 512. If we're, you know, if we're trying to make it nice and neat. The subnet is that little number below the IP address, 255-255-2550 is what you're probably used to seeing, or slash 24, that tells the computer, here is where the network stops and the hosts begin. So if it's not included in the network, it needs to be sent on to another network. And that's where we get routing. And so the basic premise is this. Switches connect hosts together. Routers connect networks together. And of course, a network is a collection of hosts communicating together. And so when you start planning out your subnet, what you're trying to figure out is how many hosts am I going to get onto a a network? When you look at buildings, typically what you'll find in any given business is there are three things that we want to segregate traffic out for. One is physical location. We'd like the Manhattan office to have a totally separate IP scheme, not a scheme, but a, a separate subnet and readily, identifi- readily identifiable than the Los Angeles office, for example. Right. And so the method that we use is this. The first octet in the IP address is 10 because 10 every IP address really should be 10 um, on a on a on a private land. The second octet that is the octet after the first dot is the physical site ID. And so the building number 1 we would use the 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 numeral 1 and 2 is 2 and 3 and so on. And so no matter what no matter what office it is, no matter what company it is, if we set up the network and I see what IP address a, a given host has, I can tell a lot of information by that IP address. The third thing ...that we encode into the IP address is the VLAN ID, and that's the third octet. Now, VLANs are somewhat of a uh, a black sheep. There are IT administrators that absolutely love VLANs and and think that they should be implemented no matter how large or small the network is. And then there's other IT administrators that will move heaven and earth to avoid having to deal with VLANs. And I can understand both sides. The problem with using VLANs is it does add an additional layer of complexity. And if you're not familiar with the technology, you should never implement it. You should never put anything into practice, even if it makes you sound ignorant, even if it makes you sound small, you should never implement anything for a client or for yourself for that matter that you don't understand. If you don't understand it, don't use it. And the way that you, the only way that you become familiar with technology is by playing with it in a controlled environment. And so I have two networks at my house. The first network is the network that my family uses because they are not going to be victims of my education. And that is, it's a a properly run network, it's properly configured, it has all the things that you would expect to have on a a, a Wi-Fi network. And the kids are able to get on YouTube, wife is able to do what she wants to do, everybody's happy. Second to that, I have a sandbox network. And the sandbox network is specifically to allow me To do research and development, to be able to learn about networks and learn about technology and try different things. So when I purchased the Synology NVR the other week and I plugged it in, the network or my, my sandbox network is what allowed me to plug that box in and put a bunch of cameras on it and try it out and see how it works without ever touching anything on my quote unquote production network at my house. Keep it simple. If you don't understand something, don't do it. Set up a test network. Go buy a Linksys router if you have to. When I was first trying to understand routing and, and, and networks and stuff like that, I actually bought some $35 Linksys routers and started plugging them together just to kind of emulate various different scenarios so I could see how it actually works, and that's very, very valuable. Another piece of software you should really look into is a software called GNS3, and GNS3 is network emulation software. It's absolutely fantastic. You can download the actual firmware for a Cisco router, and load it into GNS3 and then you can click in GNS3 and say create a router. And because that router firmware is there and it runs the router firmware as if it were an actual router, uh, it's indistinguishable from being ssh would into a router. And now you can create a second router, and you can create a switch, and you can create an access point or whatever, right? And you can design this network layout inside of a piece of software, and the software actually has networking built into it so that you can open up a regular terminal and SSH into these equipment and start setting it up. Again, fantastic and not available. You know, 25 years ago when I was going, when I was first starting out in this stuff, we had rack, uh, lab racks, and you had to rent, you had to pay somebody money, and then you would have a, uh, a VPN access, or, a, or a, they actually was a serial console, that would control uh, these, these various devices in case you accidentally you know, fat-fingered an IP address or something like that. You didn't get totally locked out. There was console access to the routers and switches. Um, but that's what you had to do. You had to build this rack. Now you can do this just on your laptop anywhere. Fantastic opportunities for people that want to learn this stuff. But learn it in an environment like that. Don't learn it in a production network. For crying out loud, please don't ever do it at a client's network. Do your education on your own time. The other thing, uh, if you do, so, along with keeping it simple and along with understanding, you know that we don't implement something unless we uh, unless we really understand it. If you don't understand VLANs and you don't understand how to segment up a, a network properly, and you're you're still working through that. My suggestion, just give every building a slash 16. And I know there's going to be some people that are going to say, that's ridiculous, that's way too big. Well, first of all, when you are dividing up a network, Slash 24 in 2019 is just too small. A slash 24 network will give you 254 usable devices on the network. But in a day and age where every light bulb, light switch, smartphone, uh, you know, uh, I mean, everything has an IP address. That 254 addresses goes quick. And it's not as big as you think it is. Um, and so what I suggest people do is go ahead and assign a slash 16. And then keep your DHCP range smaller. That is the range of addresses that you're going to assign out to clients. Keep that range a little bit smaller. If you want, keep that at 254. But keep the slash 16 in there. And what that would allow you to do is it will allow you to slowly expand out your network. Now, when you start to get to a point where the network starts to bog down a little bit because, again, you have all these broadcast traffic that's going all over the place because the slash 16 has thousands and thousands of addresses, right? When that happens, now you can start playing with VLANs inside of your sandbox or inside of GNS3, and once you fully understand and, and comprehend that technology, now you can go out and further segregate that network. So if we started a network, it's building one, because there's only one building. So we start with 10, we have one, because that's the, that's the physical ID. Then the, the third octet is the VLAN ID, so let's call that 10, because it's the data network, and it's just everything's going to be on 10 to start. And then the host ID, you know, let's start with... Uh, Let's say one through a hundred is reserved for static assignments because you want to keep some room in that IP space for printers and access points and desktops that have to have uh, static assignments for one reason or, or another. Uh, keep all of that stuff, uh, you know, maybe a hundred or so, and then maybe make the DHCP range, you know, one hundred one through you know two fifty four, or maybe just two fifty. Keep a couple on the on the on the upper end too for some for some. From Other static assignments. Some people will break that out even more. Uh, there's two schools of thought when it comes to DHCP. The first or static assignments, excuse me. The first is that the static assignments will happen at the DHCP level. So in other words, I go into my router and I just tell the router, hey, anytime you see this particular MAC address. Go ahead and assign it this particular static, uh, this uh, IP address every time. So as far as the user is concerned is that they have DHCP, but they just happen to get the same address every single time. That's one way to do it. The second way to do it is to go into each individual device and manually assign the IP address. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages on both sides. The people that that prefer to do it from a DHCP server would tell you that they have a master list of all of the th- all of the devices that are on their network and they know exactly what the IP address is and they never have to physically go anywhere. They're just able to do all of that from one central place. And that's true. But the people that assign it to the individual device would tell you that if the router ever takes a, takes a crap and somebody hasn't backed uh, up that information, which, by the way, if you're relying on the DHCP table as your documentation because you're not putting that documentation somewhere else, then chances are the router is going to crash and you're going to lose that information. Because if you were backing it up somewhere else, it, the, the argument of, well, I just have one place to look for it wouldn't really stand. There is a single point of failure, and I don't like that. And so I take kind of a hybrid approach. The way that I do it is I will assign it first in DHCP. So we have some documentation in the router just as kind of a, fail, just kind of as a secondary measure. Somebody's in there poking around. They can just see kind of a glance what, what's there. They should be checking the documentation before they really make any decisions, but at least they kind of have a glance. And then after you, after that's done, then I go to the physical device and I physically assign the address. Because what happens is the router will take a dump, and you don't want Susie to not be able to print because the router went offline. You replaced it, and in an office building with seventy workstations and and fifty five printers, you forgot about one, um, and 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 it had a DHCP lease. So there, different schools of thought, you know, do what you want, but that's the way that I kind of approach those problems. And I found that to work fairly well for me. Um, And then as far as actual VLAN segregation goes, we typically have a data network. uh, We have a voice network. And uh, there's some discrepancy on if a VLAN for voice traffic is really necessary anymore. There was a time when you were segmenting off that traffic and using quality of service to uh, to send it out. These days, the packets actually advertise themselves as voice packets and so there really is not a, there's not a big argument to be made anymore um, for 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 tagging and, and doing priority of service you can you can you can handle voice traffic differently now um, And so I would suggest just doing that at the uh, at the router level with DSCP uh, and COS. But the third network that we usually have and this is I think has proved to be very valuable for us. Is we have something what we call a legacy network, and the legacy network is you have John that had uh, some equipment installed by some manufacturer, and they had some special IP scheme that works only with their equipment, and and maybe has uh, HughesNet was pop- popular back, you know, a couple, uh, even still today we still run into them, um, where they have just a very small. Uh, network that goes out over the satellite internet connection. Those kinds of things, we need to be able to accommodate them, but we also need to be able to move forward. And so as these businesses get a cable modem installed, that becomes the new data network. And then the old network, VLAN 30, just becomes what we call the legacy network. Um, here at the shop, we actually use it for voice uh, voice over IP. And so we're using it. That's what's actually routing our audio packets uh, for the mixer. I can't believe how fast the time goes sometimes. Oh, one of these is we're going to have to expand the show a little bit further. Anyway, I hope that gives you some insight into some of the things that I used to get all to speed. We're celebrating 10 years as of Monday and a lot of fun things. Really cool stuff coming up for 2020. So make sure to stay tuned for that. Next week, Das geek ryan joins me we're going to talk about what to buy that tech special someone for christmas that happens next week a special episode won't be live at our usual time it'll be pre-recorded on friday you can join us asknoahshow.com of course it'll air on tuesday at our regular scheduled time we'll see you next week